This is the A-B Testing 343 Podcast, a podcast where we ask one of the three listeners of the A-B Testing Podcast three questions about almost anything. ABT 343 is a fun slice of what's going on in the world of modern testing. Let's get started. Hello and welcome back to ABT 343. I'm joined, this is not a repeat, if you've already heard the awesome episode with Connor Fitzgerald, it was so awesome, we had him back again. Uh, hi, Alan, and hello to the other two listeners. Perfect. Welcome back. Uh, thanks for joining us again. Uh, we talked for a while last time, and I think we both had more to talk about. So I'm glad to have you back. Uh, delighted to be back. The, the last podcast was my first time being interviewed for a podcast. I know on the Slack channel, a lot of people uh, were asking, could we do a second round, which I was quite surprised with. <laughs> Uh, we're delighted with, of course, so it's great to be back for uh, round two uh, of the Modern Testing podcast with yourself. All right. I have some more questions for you, three more to be exact, with p- potential bonus questions to throw in there, but we'll start with three. Are you ready to go? Sure. All right. When we talked last time, we talked about how you use modern testing in your current role. For the other two listeners, could you recommend one key change they should do if they want to start to use modern testing in their current role? Uh, yeah, for me, the it's critical you stop being the gatekeeper. That's a very challenging thing to change, uh, especially if you've been testing for a long time as a traditional tester. But as long as you are the gatekeeper quality, quality nothing will ever change. And that's directly related to principle three. Uh, principle three being we are a force for continuous improvement helping the team adapt and optimize in order to succeed rather than providing a safety net to catch failures. So if you're always the safety net, the second part of the principle, then you'll never get the benefits of the first part of the principle. And I guess from chatting to you in the first interview, we spoke about the fact that I, through some painful lessons, I started to learn that being a gatekeeper doesn't work and that team-based testing was the solution. And there's a couple of other things I can talk about here, or maybe we can dip in and out of them if you want, but it's kind of like the pain or the negativity of being a gatekeeper, the positive side of changing, and then how do you do change? Um, so we can start to touch in on those points if you like. Yeah, I, I want to do that because I think a lot of people, there are testers out there, not that listen to the podcast, unfortunately, but I, I run across them on Twitter or especially LinkedIn where they're happy for some reason to be the gatekeeper. Yeah. And Brent and I talk about a weird codependency there, but can you talk more about that that pain of being a gatekeeper and, and what you've seen happen there? The turning point for me was after being on a very uh, painful project that failed, and then during a period of reflection, reading the book Lessons Learned Software Testing, and some of the things that made me realize was firstly, when you're a safety net, it means others aren't learning about testing or gaining valuable product knowledge. And on a personal level, I don't know if people realize it, maybe they don't, but it is a huge burden for testers. It can be isolating, be the gatekeeper, and it can be quite stressful for them in the workplace. And um, if you are that safety net, then you in turn are, uh, or if you're the gatekeeper, you're more likely to be a bottleneck, uh, potentially because the activity of testing is not shared, then it's most likely that other activities aren't shared either, such as writing automation. And there's loads of data to show that high-performing teams align with developers working on the automation. Uh, I believe that was an accelerate. I think they got the data from the state of DevOps reports. And I, I guess why those teams perform better is because the developers 
are much more aware of the product and the various challenges when they have to go and automate it. Um, and it probably helps with things like testability. And a related topic to that, what I found in the past is when you're the gatekeeper, the decision to release software or not can be quite confrontational rather than with team-based testing is collaborative. So when you're a gatekeeper, the tester can sometimes be blocking the release rather than when it's more collaborative and it's a discussion. And, and I've never had a problem in the last number of years when we use mobbing and bug bashing and things like that. The team just say this software is good enough now or not to be released and there's no problem. And one other thing I think is I around uh, bias. Uh, a quote from you on, Alan, on Twitter recently was, if testers say we are the only ones who care about quality, it excludes everyone else. And I'm of the opinion, opinion that it's highly risky to not include others in testing. As testers, we're test specialists. We bring a lot to the party, but we have biases, uh, the same as everyone else. So by working with others, we are getting a wider diversity in our testing and thus reducing the risk of our own biases. So that's my side on the, the pain or negative side of being a gatekeeper. Yeah, I had a lot of flashbacks. I remember being a gatekeeper. I remember working for test managers who blocked or wanted to block the release. I worked with the dev manager once who said the said the primary role of the test team was to sign off on release. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and and of course what Brent and I say is a gatekeeper is a bottleneck. Yeah. And as you know, in modern testing, we don't like bottlenecks. We borrow heavily from lean. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, like lean. And um, I was even watching your uh, videos in Coder Dojo today, and it brought me back to a book I read a couple of years ago, The Goal, which is a, a very nice bottle. Uh, yes. A nice book about bottlenecks. Um, we were just having a, a discussion. The meeting I was in before we chatted uh, was a, I won't dive into Unity de- details, but a retrospective with another team outside of my org. And I messaged someone in Slack during the meeting and said, you ever read the Phoenix Project? This team is Brent and not Brent Jensen. Brent, the bottleneck, right. <laughs> the, the human bottleneck from the Phoenix Project. Yeah. Let's move yeah. on. Uh, this is a fun one. Some people, and we've talked about the controversial principles, and some people consider at least one, usually two of the modern testing principles to be to have some level of controversy, uh, especially principle number seven, which is very carefully worded, but it says that you may not need dedicated testing specialists. What do you think? Uh, do you have any opinions on controversy in the principles? Yeah, like so I, I guess one that does cause a little bit of controversy is that the customers don't even can uh, determine quality, but I think the one that probably causes more controversy is probably seven, um, as you were saying, which is, you know, uh, we expand testing abilities and know-how across the team, understanding this may reduce or eliminate the need for a dedicating test specialist. So to me, principle seven is actually something to aspire to, which was interesting for me when I was listening to the podcast and listening to those in-depth conversations you did. Uh, to me, it, it wasn't controversial. And if you eliminate the need for dedicating test, testing specialists, you have actually been successful in your role. Essentially, you've helped that team ensure their self is sufficient at the activity of testing. And if you achieve that, you will be in demand. Your current company won't want to lose you, and other companies will want you. And I think it's worth noting that often it may be the word reduce rather than eliminate, and that teams, even when they're doing team-based testing, they'll often look to you as the dedicated 
uh, specialist to help tweak and fine-tune them, help out with the retros, uh, help facilitate those bug bashes, whatever it may be. Um, and even if you get to the point that you eliminate it, it may still be that you've done a great job. But I guess on the subject of being controversial, at Soft Test Dublin last year, there's a speaker, uh, John Paul uh, Varick, I hope I got his name right, and uh, he works at Rabobank, and he's a big fan of the modern testing, and he did the keynote, and his keynote was actually on modern testing, and his talk was to have testers or not to have testers. And it's probably one of the best uh, talks I heard last year at the conference, and it really made me reflect afterwards that for traditional testers, probably principle seven probably strikes fear rather than controversy for them in that the fear of change and fear that their role is changing. And I guess that can be very hard for some people. When Brent and I started talking about modern testing and modern testing principles, it wasn't to create fear. It was because of the fear. Yes. We wanted to provide some tools and wording and discussion to help people navigate how software development was changing. I'm going to shove in a side question here. I think this is related. That fear of change, especially among traditional testers. We saw this. There's always been change in, in testing when all of a sudden, 15 years ago, Microsoft and a bunch of other companies decided all the testers needed to know how to code. There was this fear that people thought we could automate everything. But I don't think anybody's ever really thought we could automate everything. And you've heard my tautology statement on this. We should automate 100% of the tests that should be automated. Yes, very sensible. <laughs> the, test, the, the, test design, the test design challenge is figuring out where those 100% are. Yeah. So here's the side question with that setup. Last night I was in a, I was tired and I opened up Twitter and I happened to open up right up to someone having an argument that I'm going to paraphrase it. I think they're already mad at me on Twitter. I've been afraid to look. Okay. Uh, but all, all, without calling them out, all I said was something to the effect of I opened Twitter and saw another argument about how all testing can't be automated. I'm not mad about the argument. I'm just wonder how I got to 1997 and why Twitter still works. I think that statement, the first half of that statement comes from some fear of if we don't have testers, we'll try and automate all the testing. And that will, and of course, we can't do that. We can't automate all the testing. We can automate all the tests that should be automated. Where does the rest of that testing come from in your world? How does testing happen if there are no dedicated testers? I, uh, so in the organization at the moment, um, there isn't a tester in each team. Uh, so some teams have a dedicated tester and others don't, but the team still do the activities of testing. So they bake in the quality as they go. So they're, they're testing together when they're doing their mobbing sessions uh, through their code reviews. And they've taken responsibility for automation that was written actually by uh, a dedicated uh, test specialist in the past. So they've taken over a lot of those activities. Uh, they, from time to time, do look outside and, and would ask to have conversations with a dedicating, dedicated testing specialist. But for the greater part, they're a self-contained team. And from my part, from my, observes, uh, my observation of them, they, the quality of the software they produce seems to be very good. You knew the answer I was going for, and you you already answered it, I think, in the first question, is by the time you don't need a dedicated testing specialist, it isn't because you've automated all the tests. It means it's because the team does enough testing on their own of all types. Indeed. 
that they don't need that specialist to do it for them. Yeah. And that's the, and that's the part that gets lost why why the point we want to keep on driving home and it's why having not having testers doesn't mean you're not doing testing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um like I, I guess you, you seem from listening to you over time, I think we think similarly on this point as well, which is related in that testers I've worked with some excellent people who be automate you know, who do automation testing or will probably be known as estates. Um, who are excellent at their role, but for the greater part, testers are skill set are better placed outside automation for the greater part. And that being working with developers, for example, um, to write the test so that developers write the test or at least help guide them in writing the code is a much better use of um, the resource of a tester. So working, picking out what are the valuable tests, because you were talking about the tests that need to be done. So testers will be very good at picking out personas and user journeys, following those critical paths, often the ones maybe that are tied to revenues and saying, these are the most critical things we should automate. And then working with a developer to write really reliable, good quality automation uh, that you can trust. And similarly for your you know, alerting and other things, working with developers or working with uh, people from an SRE or DevOps background to get these things in place is, is much better use of a testing specialist. You have been, as uh, I've announced on the podcast before, I'm doing far fewer conference presentations. Uh, I did one last year. I'll probably do one this year. But you, on the other hand, have been doing uh, a reasonable amount of speaking over the last few years. And I'm curious how modern testing and what you've learned and what you've practiced has influenced what you speak about at conferences. Uh, yeah, sure. So maybe give you a little savor of what I've been speaking about and uh, we can see if there's anything interesting in there. So um, I, I guess I'm relatively new to speaking at conferences. Uh, I've spoken at about five to date and I've spoken on three broad categories. Uh, the first is how we can learn from other industries and disciplines, uh, learning thing from aviation, healthcare, economics, the world of business, uh, for example, marketing. The second broad category is Kanban, and I have a talk uh, Kanban from a tester's perspective, but ultimately it's a story of two teams using Kanban for the first time and the challenges they faced and the benefits it brought them. And the third one is one uh, Robert Meany and I uh, delivered, as many of the listeners will probably know uh, Rob, and uh, we delivered a talk called Experimenting Our Way to Team-Based Testing, which was uh, a reflection on three years together in Popolo working together. And uh, I've also delivered a number of talks at the Ministry of Testing Cork Meetup. And Rob and I uh, kind of co-founded or got that off the ground back in 2017. And we've done a mix of solo and joint talks uh, with Rob there. So we've done things like exploratory testing, heuristics, and a few more technical ones as well, like how to test microservices and an introduction to automation. But I guess uh, most interesting for you is I spoke at Test Bash Brighton uh, the year after you, after you, the year that being the year after you delivered the modern testing uh, principles uh, talk, and you'll be glad to know I included two of the modern testing principles in my talk, which was principles two and six, when I was speaking about uh, how we can use models and about how we can use data. How is I have a couple questions okay. about that, and actually I'm probably even more interested in the Kanban talks. So we're going to come back there, okay. but to start off with, how about a little bit more context around maybe what you talked about with principles two and six. And then if if there was any feedback around that, that would be interesting to share for the listeners. 
Uh, yeah, I, I guess uh, it was. I did get a little bit of feedback because some people at the conference weren't aware of modern testing principles, so they were interested to talk a little bit more about it. So uh, I talked about principle two because I talked about when I was uh, studying business uh, part time a couple of years ago. One of the subjects I loved was marketing, and marketing are really, really good. Uh, there are various models. Uh, they have a model for everything, and anybody can just look at their model and quickly analyze what it means. So what I said is that's something that we can learn as testers, that I'm a big fan of modeling, whether that being architectural diagrams or using something like a mind map, anything that kind of visually represents what a system looks like. And then related to that as well was that when I was doing the same business course, I was also studying uh, e-commerce. And I was fascinated the way they use data to figure out how people work through the systems in that what point do, in, in a transaction do people leave the landing page? What point do they leave the cart? Do they leave the payments page? And they use data to figure out where they left and they use um, the term, like they use personas and, and the terms user journeys. And I found it fascinating at the time that I was trying to write at the point at that point in time I was trying to automate all the things, and I started to realize that if if I kind of encompass some of the principles from e-commerce and focus on personas and user journeys and the most important things to automate, that there's a lot to be got there. So what I was trying to do, in summary, there was trying to articulate, articulate the importance of point six is the use of data and use that to actually try to help you figure out what you should automate and also things like figure out should you work on a feature or should you retire a feature and all those good things. It's an interesting, I, I wrote down my questions this time so I wouldn't forget. But, okay. <laughs> uh, one thing that's worked out, I think not intentionally, but also not surprisingly is the interplay and the interaction between the principles. And you're 100% correct in Principle number two is about understanding the system and trying to figure out the system and how it works so we can understand where the... If we don't understand the system, we can't find the bottlenecks and we can't optimize it. So two goes into three there. But with data, with customer data, analytic data, that gives us an even better, more accurate view of the system and how it works. Yes. So that's... it's. I, I like thinking about it that way. It reminds me also, those believe it or not, of... The question I was going to ask earlier, a lot of people, even people who don't know about or care about the modern testing principles, do agree that testing is a learning activity. And does it, does it mean that testers are the only people that learn? Because as you and I know, anyone can do testing. And somebody's going to yell at me for saying that, but you know what I mean. Yes. And But that activity is done well is a inquisitive learning discovery trying to learn the system is part of that yes it's understanding what it is we're testing i think i don't think anybody any of the uh the names in the industry would disagree that's important the thing i want to bring up in in regards to the previous question which fits in well here is that pairing with other people developers uh product managers and talking about what are we making? Who is it for? What can go wrong? And having those discussions also helps us understand the system or understand where the risk 
places the areas of risk may be in the system in order to get a better grasp on the system and have a better idea of what we need to do to alleviate that risk. Wheels within wheels, it all fits together rather nicely. It does indeed. Uh, Let me uh, go on a little bit before we close. I want to talk because I'm a big fan of Kanban. For and I could go on a preachy thing on why I like it, but I kind of want to hear a couple of your big takeaways and from your talk. Like, what were some of the main points? Like, what were your big takeaways from your from what you learned using Kanban and that that maybe everyone should know about? Well, there's um, yeah, it was quite. Uh, I got a lot more feedback after this talk at Test Bash Manchester than I think I did at the other talk at, uh, at Brighton and. Um, some of the things I focused on was just um, some of the things that people liked and didn't thought about was uh, moving across the Kanban board from right to left rather than left to right and have a focus on finishing things rather than starting new things. Uh, that was one thing that people really liked. And uh, another main thing was that we used an acceptance queue. And initially when I started one of the teams, that became a bottleneck. And... That was a really helpful thing going back to the gatekeeper that we realized the acceptance queue was the bottleneck. There was one of me and there were several developers. So we started to change things around. I started to work with the developers earlier, which meant there was more testing done in the earlier uh, lanes. But on top of that, we changed the rules that anyone could test anything in the acceptance queue as long as they had not developed it. And that make it, made a big difference. And that's really what helped us shift to team-based testing. And um, I know that some people see an acceptance queue in a, as a bottleneck in its own right, but the acceptance queue wasn't there to be a bottleneck. It was there to be, it had a purpose. And, and the purpose really for us was that we mocked up a lot of data in the early testing on the developers' uh, systems. And the idea for us for the acceptance queue was to test it on a real environment and to make sure everything was okay before we pushed that button and got it out to production. Um, so yeah, there were some of the, there were two of the, the key things anyway, the moving from right to left and then how we tackled the acceptance queue. And the interesting thing was when I went and worked with a second team, then they initially didn't want an acceptance queue because in the past they'd seen it as a bottleneck. But because of my experience in the first team, they, they took my advice essentially and worked with me and we put in the acceptance queue. And I really think it helped create that culture of team-based testing in that second team as well. Two rules of Kanban are, the main two rules are, limit your work in progress and visualize your work. Yeah. Usually stated in the opposite direction. So Kanban, the, the, your last statement there is what Kanban is for. It shows you where your bottlenecks are. Yeah. And that's, there's two big reasons I like Kanban. One is it's an easy way to immediately find or very quickly find what are the bottlenecks in your process. And you can figure out what to do to mitigate those so they aren't a bottleneck anymore. Uh, I see a lot of teams use Kanban but not really enforce work in progress. But in your case, it's a great example because you have, because of that acceptance queue and the fact that anyone can test that, people are, in order to be able to do more work, they can go help out doing the testing for a piece of work to free up a spot in the queue for the next thing, which is great. Yeah, it's, it's driving all of the right behavior. The other thing I like, and uh, I'll talk about a little bit and then we can close out here, is is I think the conversations around Kanban I like a lot more than the what I call the scrum zombie dance. 
Yeah. <laughs> where you have Scrum and people, yesterday I worked on the thing, today I'm doing the thing, I'm not blocked on anything. And the next day they come to their Scrum stand-up, they sit down and they say, yesterday I did the thing, today I'm doing the thing, I'm not blocked on anything. And what that sounds like is they don't care, they're not blocked. So when I do Scrum stand-ups, the question is easy. What do you need to do to move this ticket to the right? Then I get the details I actually need. I know why they're still working on that thing. I know what we can do as a team to help them if needed. Uh, it's it just to me it's a much more powerful conversation. And of course, you can if if you do if you do Scrum well and you have a good Scrum master, you can get past that Scrum zombie syndrome. But I've had a lot of luck just with that question in Kanban meetings, and I it it works well for me. Your mileage may vary. Yeah, no, it's uh, I fully agree with you. It's one of the the great things about it because I went from kind of waterfall environments to Scrum on a couple of uh, projects and companies, and then when I joined this, the my most recent role, I really wanted to use Kanban and all the things you're saying. It works like you know, like visualizing the work, which is the first thing you kind of do to to get it implemented, but also as well how it changes the stand up. Um, because that's another improvement to move away from Scrum, what I did yesterday, what I'm going to do today, and instead talk to the board and talk about getting things unblocked and moving things to done. And uh, that's not a powerful change. When you're moving the board, from walking the board from right to left is powerful, but changing the stand-up to talk to the board and not talk about individuals' activities is, uh, is a big shift for me. Yeah, it highlights what everybody's doing. Indeed. <laughs> anyway, our, our Kanban love fest cannot go on forever. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> ping us on Slack and, and we'll go yes. on. Any uh, final words, other things you want to mention? Um, I will be covering my Kanban talk. Uh, I will be covering over the Kanban and other subjects soon, but uh, at Agile Lean Ireland this year, which is a big agile conference in Dublin. I'm going to talk about the learnings from the aviation industry. So if anybody is in the Dublin area um, and enjoys all things agile, uh, look me up and maybe you might like to attend that conference. Awesome. I'll uh, I'll try and dig up a link to that, a, a website to that and put them in the notes. Sure. Uh, and I do like to see that uh, I think we're seeing a trend of a lot of things around Modern testing, agile, we're starting to see more testers who are, it should just be anecdotal or or recency bias, but I'm seeing folks in the modern testing community out there speaking at non-testing conferences about quality things. I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, my, my, my good buddy, Rob uh, Meany is similar to me. He's very eager to speak at not, like, not just speak at non-testing conferences, but to get the our thoughts around testing out there into in to other disciplines like DevOps conferences and Agile conferences, if we can get out there into those kind of conferences as well and, and start to share our thoughts on testing. And uh, the interactions you get with people are brilliant. Uh, there's a conference in Cork every year called RebelCon, and I spoke that last year. The connections you get with all the different disciplines uh, at these kind of conferences is wonderful. And it kind of shares your own knowledge and thoughts uh, on testing and probably generally how we develop and develop software as a whole. I totally agree. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for being, thank you for doing uh, yet another ABT 343. I think our listeners would just love to have you back every week, but we'll take a break from you for a while. We'll have you back soon. But uh, like I said last time, I, I love hearing stories like this and I hope our listeners uh, love them as much as I do. And thanks again for being on the uh, show. Thank you, Alan. All right. We'll see you.